Life is yeah, good. Yeah, everything. Every, yeah, everything is good, man. You know, just taking it easy. You know, that's that's what's up. Always, always trying to do some more uploads, get some more beats out there and stuff. Okay. Babe, you got the fan on? <laughs> okay, my bad, my bad. So let me go ahead and hit the, let me hit the spammy spam. Mm -hmm. All right, there we go. Okay, cool, cool. My, I got my man Tony Anthems in the building. Brother, shout yes, yourself sir. out. Yeah, Toot your man, horn, because I can't do it better than you. Well, me, man, you know, I'm just an underground cat, you know what I'm saying? It's underground with it, always been. Uh, TonyAnthems.com is the website. Um, we have uh, quite a few of our beats, um, have some you know, have some merch, and also services, you know, A&R Consulting. People can hit me up, and I do uh, do our cons consultations on their music or their project and things of that nature. Um, yeah. So business is good. Well, you know, business is business. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm an underground cat, so uh, I, I always appreciate the small um, client base, you know, uh, because you have repeat clients. So mm -hmm. there's people that I've been working with for over a decade that'll come back and um, render, uh, render some services for them, things of that nature. Okay, okay. Um, uh, Nine Millie is one of them. Uh, he has a project coming out. Um, he's been doing pretty good. He's out and he's based out of Texas, but he's from the Bronx originally. I was working with him. I believe I did his first mixtape when he was 19. Okay. Now he's in his 30s. So yeah. Underground shit though, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do we get here? What uh, led you down this path? Were you a child of a, of a musician? Parents was like, nah, I want you to do this. How did, how do, how did your path, how did you embark on your, on your path? Well, as far as music, since I can remember, my dad got me a guitar for my fifth birthday. And then um, I remember uh, in second grade, I started playing trumpet. Uh, and I played like in the Westchester County Orchestra and stuff, you know. Um, so I played trumpet from like, I think second grade to about seventh grade or so, something like to that effect. So as far as like the music background, kind of um, learning it, um, just kind of through, you know, like when you have a kid and you want your kid to kind of get into extracurricular activities. So some of it was that, but then um, once I got about 12 years old, that's when I got into DJing because I was working at this place called the Akbar Center for the Arts. It was an art gallery. My first job, I think I was about like 11, 12 years old. I started working as a janitor part-time after school and shit, you know. So um, it being an art gallery, they had events there. They used to rent out the, the hall on the second floor where they'll have like a uh, parties and stuff like that okay and i was uh so on the weekend sometimes i worked there to clean up after the the guests and things of that nature whatever the case is but i was always like a little kind of little dj and then i had an opportunity where one of the djs didn't show up and then i end up entertaining the crowd of 30 30 and ups like 30 40 years old playing before i let go doom, doom, yeah. doom, doom. you know what i'm saying i was yeah. doing all this is probably like in 87 or some shit like that so that was kind of like um just kind of things that kind of happened by accident in a sense but uh, as far as um, getting into production, I didn't get into, uh, I used to rap when I was like, a, you know, high school, ninth grade, shit like that. And then just the frustration of being in the studio, sitting on the black leather couch, waiting for your turn. And, you know, the sessions, you don't get your slot time. So yeah. eventually that's how I got into becoming a producer. You know what I'm saying? So um, once I was about uh, for my 18th birthday, 17th, 18th birthday, my mom had bought me a, a, 
she invested um, some thousands to get me the Korg X3, the four track and everything, okay. the whole setup. Okay. And that's how I really got into it. Just, it was it was an effort to get me out of trouble because when I was a teenager, I was kind of wilding out a little bit. So that was her way of kind of getting me off the streets. And, you know, I was more in the house now at that point. Shout out to moms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, God bless. Let, let me ask you this. Um, the state of production, you've seen, you've seen it come from the SP-1200 to the, uh, the SP, um, to the uh, MPC, to the machine, to... Do you like where it's going? Do you like that it's so easy now for for young guys to come in and just the Fruity Loops, Cubase? I remember us old heads was like, "What is the fuck is this?" this is oh it. man, that, that's the Fruity Loops. I, it's funny. I got fruit. I never used it. I still ha I have the newest one in my computer, but just never use it. It's just like you know, because um, I'm so used to using machines and everything like that. Like I said, um, my first joint was a Korg X3, and this was 1994. Uh, Korg X3, that sound, it's kind of like the RZA sound a little yes. bit. Those yes, yes. And, and things of that nature. Yeah. You know, and then the Triton, of course, later on down the line, that's the Swiss Beats, you know, uh, Pharrell, then, you know, he doesn't uh, use listen, every when patch. The, <laughs> when the Triton hit, you weren't a producer if you didn't have that. You know? yeah, that was that was necessary. <laughs> so I, I think I got like my, not my first placement, but I got my fastest placement off the Triton. I was very angry one day and I'm, I made one of those angry beats yeah. and dude, dude walked in the studio was like, he bought the beat on the spot, 15, quick little 1500. Yeah. Cop the joint on the spot. Yeah, it was, it was funny. But um, yeah, I, I say, um, yeah, the barriers to entry are a lot less financially. You know, anyone could go get a laptop, get a, you know, get some Fruity Loops and, and get going. Mm -hmm. um, pros and cons. I'll say the pros of that is, uh, you know, if you have a little hard-headed nephew, you can kind of get him out of trouble, like get him busy on something, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Real easy, real quick. Like, for example, my nephew, uh, one of my nephews for his birthday, I got him a, um, a little Mac mini computer and okay. a little MIDI keyboard. He started making techno music, like, instantly, you know what I'm saying? Um, but the uh, the cons of it is because it, it, it makes the game a little bit more saturated and it devalues the price point, I'll say. You know, because you have a lot of leases that are like twenty, thirty, forty dollars. Back when I was coming up, you could be an unknown producer and you get a cat from Texas that'll give you thirty five hundred. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. With, with no name, you're not a, you're a no name of getting thirty five hundred. Yeah. Know, back in those days, because back in the '90s, you know, it was um, you know, it was the, the barriers to entry. You know, that Ampex two inch tape was was like a couple of hundred dollars. You know, plus the session. You know, it was a lot of money to get a song done back in those days. You know, um, but it, the, the music back then, I say you, it was more classic because it took a lot more of an effort. So I think create, creatively, I think it was um, now it's so microwave, you know, songs uh, just fly by night. So many songs that you're not going to really remember anything as a classic here today, gone tomorrow, you know, kind of thing. Right. Whereas now, if you hear Summertime from Fresh Prince, you know, that's a classic. You, you think about a barbecue you know, that, that it brings a memory of something of some sort. It meant something for a certain time period, which is different, much different now, you know. Do, do you try to uh, impart, um, okay, we agree that music theory is tantamount to you be, to one becoming, you know, a, a, a producer per se, as opposed to a beat maker. Right. Do you find yourself trying to impart that on into younger producers you come across, or is it more like you know what they're not gonna get it? Maybe just let them come when they're ready 
to, to embrace the, the next level of, of their production uh, skills or no? Uh, yeah, because the thing is, I, I started doing um, loop packs, like loop, uh, loop kits and everything like that. And the purpose of me doing that was for the younger people, especially people who are getting into Fruity Loops, where they'll do a loop before they actually play a, a melody. Yep. So now um, with my loop kits, I always include the key. So if it's in the key of E minor, if it's a, a 126 tempo, and um, I include that in the file. So that way they can go ahead and say, okay, it's in the key of E minor. So now they could take that loop, start off their beat just to get a starting point, And then they can start adding keys of E minor for the bass and for everything else around it, the melody, the harmony, everything else, and try to build around it. So I think music theory is good because it's always good to, I like to dress up the sample because I didn't start off really as a sampling producer. I started off with the Cog X3 making melodies from scratch and everything. But um, I feel that sampling, the, the genius of sampling is really adding the subtle sounds around the sample to make it feel like, you know, the sounds are originally part of the piece, you know. How, okay, so if, if you had to put a percentage of samples uh, that you, you, that you use or you do, is less than 10%, 5%, 20%? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely less than 20% of the time. Okay, so, so you don't... 20% of the beat, you mean of the beat or of the time? Uh, both. Both. I'll say 20, yeah, 20, 20, definitely. Because if I use a sample, it might just be a voice sample or like a phrase, or it might just be uh it might just be a guitar uh a guitar loop, a guitar piece, and then I'll dress the guitar and I'll add piano, add everything else around it, bass and everything else. Do um, do you, you know. feel that um the produ- production has gotten away from samples? If you believe that, is that a good thing? As opposed to, you know, already built in, like you said, loop packs and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. I think now, um, I think with the same, I think with it, with it not having a lot of samples can be a good thing, but then sometimes there's a, th- there's a thin line between original and whack. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So I, I feel that, um, sometimes when people would do melodies from scratch, I, I feel sometimes it could, the music could sound too electronic. It, mm-hmm. it could be too electronic. I think sometimes samples could get you into some lo-fi get you into some original sound, like the Rhodes keys and some of these other sounds and organs and stuff that are more organic to give the, the sound that that layer and that richness that that warmth to it you know sometimes um for example trap music um there's a lot of dope trap beats some of my favorite beats and, and actually some of my most fun beats to make are trap beats but then there's some of them that are just too electronic you know it just doesn't you know it takes away from the authenticity of, of the sound i think well let me ask you is that an element that you think turns off a lot of old heads with the trap beats per se i would say though i would say that definitely the sense sounds and claps you know as an old head sometimes you know we don't want to hear a bunch of too many claps we like more uh thicker snare drums um but the thing that's attractive about trap music is the 808s you know that the the, the 808s and those kick drums and everything um but there's also trap where um like Metro Boomin, he would sample, he would take a sample like uh like that that joint from Future. Um I don't chase it I don't chase chicks, I chase it. I, I chase a check, I never chase a bitch, that joint. Yeah, yeah. The flute. Yeah. That flute is, you know, phenomenal, you know. So he's able to merge. I like the hybrid, uh when I you know, taking a, some trap drums, trap drum pattern, but having like a, a, a ill sample to it. You know, Let me... and some of these kids are sampling nineties music too. I've noticed that. 
I've noticed that, and it's I'm I'm glad to see it. I mean, if you're gonna do it, you know, I mean, what better genre uh, or decade to to sample from? Let me ask you this: um, How important is it to you that the producer need to learn how to know know to read music per se? Um, as a producer, it may not be necessary because as a producer, you're basically putting together a vision of what you sonically think should be put together whether it be a sample, and then you get a guy from down the street to play bass guitar over that sample, then you might get another person. But as a role of a producer, I would say, because basically it's the meeting of the minds, more or less. Mm. But as far as from a creative's perspective, I think it never hurts to learn how to read music. I took music theory. I went to school for music. Um, I got one was like a certification in audio engineering and things of that nature. Um, I think if you're going to be a serious musician, you should put a little theory behind it some education and, and some effort behind it, especially if you want to have a long a, a career, whereas you might be wearing a couple of hats. And I think learning how to read music is, I think is very important, you know, because um, I feel it just takes your creativity to a whole other level. And then on top of that, you could replay samples. It might be something that you may want to sample and you could replay it and then you could probably get around some of the clearances and things of that nature. Let me ask you this. Can you put into words how much music theory has helped your sound and your creativity? Can you explain to somebody that, 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 that doesn't, to a producer that doesn't know music theory, right? That just strictly Cubase and, and Fruity Loops. Could you explain it to that person and say, look, you need to learn this because in so many words, this is what you will learn or know. Could you put that into words to a, to a regular, to a non-music theory producer? Yeah, I think I think learning music theory and applying it for me, what it does, what it did for me was it allowed me to jump into different genres as far as doing things that are more jazzy, doing things that might be more blues based. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think listening to different types of music always helps. But um, applying the music theory, I think it expands your sound to where you can do music for anything, you know, because right now I want to get into more film stuff. Um, between me and my, my co-producers are uh, Brandon Chapper, shout out to him. Um, I do a lot of A&R stuff for him and um, some managerial kind of things. Um, but we work as co-producers under a brand called The Clef Lab. So um, I think music theory and what that allowed me to do was to be able to um, make music, get my music uh, appreciated from different countries. Like when I come out with a loop pack or I upload, I do my uploads on Spotify and things mm -hmm. of that nature. I'll notice certain beats that appeal to like, you know, Pakistan, you know, India, certain places, because I might have used a particular type of sound, but I might have played it in maybe a gypsy uh, uh, scale. I get, I get you, yeah, right. Yeah. You see? So yeah. It, it, I think music theory does help because it, it helps you manipulate your sound and, and, and have an understanding of how far you can take it and what type of audience you want to reach at any particular time, especially as, as far as being a producer, you never know. And see me, my background is in audio engineer. So they go hand in hand. Um, and as an audio engineer, I worked with uh, someone recording a cello, recording a harp. I worked with a, a, a Caribbean steel drum uh, uh, band. I worked with a reggae band, you know, hooking up, you know. So yeah, it's, it's always, and then with that, you always get to understand the differences in, in, in the timbre of sounds and the different textures of the sounds and, and things of that nature. So yeah, music theory to me is very important and allowed me to kind of be able to sit and work with different types of people, different types of, you know, genres and things of that nature. Cause you can communicate with the musicians better.
Gotcha. Um, it, yeah, and, and like you said, it helps you to be able to deal with different genres of music. You can just weave in and out seamlessly and not have a, a dated sound. Or, you know, I remember like when Swiss Beats would try to do other genres when before he, you know, became a full body producer, you could still hear that it's like the very rudimentary same slaps the asr 10 sounds like everybody their mom used to use that so right. um True. for me i remember when um new records came out we would just pick apart sounds and see what instruments they use and see if we could pinpoint and pick out what what synthesizers they use did you ever find yourself kind of picking apart another producer's work just to to, to match yours to see where you're at against theirs at all or do you still do that yeah, I actually, um, one of my, one of my, uh, the people I always looked up to was Pete Rock. You know, we're from the same neighborhood, Mount Vernon, New York, and okay. stuff like that. Okay. But, um, yeah, man. Uh, I remember uh, his bass lines. I remember because in the early '90s, I didn't have a lot of exposure to sampling until I worked with um, different producers. Uh, shout out to Melodramatic. I worked with him, and then that's how I got um, accustomed to working with the ASR10. And then um, Lucky, this cat, uh, this group from uh, called Tongues in the Attic, um, their producer, I worked with him. That's how I got familiar with the SB12. And I could say um, Pete Rock was one of the, uh, that uh, they really reminisce over you. That was one of the joints right there that got me actually into producing. Okay. So uh, Q-Tip is another one. Um you know the the low end theory album was a, a a deep inspiration something i still reference to and listen to this, to this day uh there's just a lot of classic albums um also i like and as far as producers cuz i dissect and i always respect and listen to different uh 40 the one that produces for drake i, I like i like how i like his stuff okay i like his stuff um i like that sound that that muffled voices kind of joint and then on top of that what i what but the thing about Drake, and I think the reason why he's so consistent is because he still works with 40. Even if he's working with another producer, 40 would be the engineer. So it'll still have that care and that sound, you know, because they grew up together, obviously, you know, that it's a, you know. Yeah, that's the element because he knows what, what it's just like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis with, without Janet Jackson. It's like, with or Janet without yeah. them. They, they know her. They know what fits with her. They know what to bring out. So, yeah, I, I agree that 40... And, and Drake are just, you know, an unbeatable team at, at this point. They should never really not deviate from that too much. You know, um, yeah, I, I, I in him to be like um, the Kevin Feige. Like, he can bring another producer to be like, look, this is what he needs. And this right. is how he, I see you fitting for him. Do you ever find yourself right. doing that for uh, other artists or if you're working with another producer, per se, at times? Yeah, uh, there's an artist I've been working with for a long time. We haven't done i think the last placement i got with him was a couple years a few years ago but this artist named hostile we actually um he's an artist uh we started working i think we were like 17 when we met i met him freestyling outside of gun hill road he had a black leather jacket on that shit is crazy so you know he's freestyling crazy i ended up being his producer we did a gang of joints um we had an underground smash joint called um the crime rate and a nine eight we raised the crime rate that's just the Eden Wall mind state. We had a joint. We did an album called. Uh, we dropped the album. I think it was two thousand three, two thousand four. Uh, it was on. It was in the stores too. Underground shit though, you know. Okay. Um, it was in Best Buy and shit like that. There's an album called Be Extra. Uh, we did a joint. Actually, we did a joint. Um, rest in peace to Guru from Gangstar. We did a joint with uh, Guru. Um, I got to meet DJ Premier in the studio. Uh, 
Uh, we work with heat makers on that. Uh, Alchemist got a couple joints of Alchemist. Um, DJ Premier did a joint. So yeah, like underground shit, but um, that's an artist that I've definitely worked with for decades. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Just shows, different little things that we, uh, and even um, on that production, on that album, I think I only produced like one or two, like two beats on that joint. Um, but yet and still, you know, I would be the one always hosting the mixtapes, always putting it together, always doing that final edits and stuff like that. So definitely, cause I know him, like, you know what I'm saying? I know his personality. I know his sense of humor. I know the type of the way he would emphasize, mm-hmm. you know, his lyrics and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it works really, it works good. It's definitely a meticulous process, you know? Let, let me ask you this, um, the, the A&R aspect of it, uh, in your, in your eyes, how much has it changed and has it changed for the better? The A&R aspect, you know, cause it seems like they got kind of flushed out of the, uh, record companies in a sense. So now the A&R thing to me now is more of a hustle than anything. They would have a conference and they'll charge maybe a hundred dollars a head yeah. to get people, you know, yeah. you got to pay now to, to be seen. So yeah. back in the days, it was more or less, you know, a bunch of demos and then you'll just be that lucky person to get a phone call or email or whatever the case may be. They'll actually seek you out for, for the talent that you have and have you come into the office or whatever the case may be. Now it's more like whoever can pay, you know, and mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit disingenuous now. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a disconnect nowadays too, I would say, you know, um, even, uh, even the, well, the DJ, there's still a few DJs that break records, but it's very few DJs that actually break records that actually put somebody on to like the job of a DJ is to put us on to some shit that we ain't never heard of, you know, and then from that, based on the reaction of that, that's kind of catapults into the success of that, that they introduced. So that a little bit of that is missing because I think now because uh, the there's not there's not too many barriers to entry. Anyone can get a song. They can upload it, get a DistroKid account, and get it on Spotify in in minutes. You know, so it's way different now. Like there's less, I guess, gatekeeping. I would say. Which is going to lead to my next question because of the 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 vastness of the internet. How much easier has it been? in your eyes for producers to, to kind of get put on and get their works out there um, because back in the day it used to be very clickish and yeah very gatekeepy and um if you weren't down with somebody's team and they couldn't vouch for you more than likely you weren't not going to get in so h- how much easier has it been because of the, of the internet soundcloud things of that nature for producers to get their works out there I think it's a lot easier now too, especially if a producer is willing to invest in himself, which most are because most of us paid tens of thousands of dollars just to get the equipment before we even started making a dollar back, you know? Um, but if a, if a producer is willing to um, deal with people like, um, let me see, um, is it Gumby Beats? I think it's Gumby. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he's a good guy uh, to deal with as far as, there's producers out there who have the sauce to get your stuff placed in. Um, Cause between me and Brandon, we got placements in like, you know, love and hip hop LA, love and hip hop Atlanta. A um, couple of other little TV shows and, and things of that nature. But really what it's about now is buying the program. Like if you, if you find someone who has a legit program, like Gumby beach or something like that, you might invest maybe 60, a hundred dollars into a program to where they can get you uh, um certain lists and certain information, uh, music, um, 
supervisors and things mm. of that nature to get your music in front of them. So you can kind of bypass what we would use the A&R for back in the day and just knowing the right producer or like me, for instance, I had got a Soldier Boy placement because I did a collaboration, me and uh, my co-producer, Brandon Chapel, we did a collaboration with MPC Cartel. Okay. So MPC Cartel, they have a gang of placements all over. Everybody from PB Longway to Migos to you name it, they have beats with them, you know? Um, so by me investing in myself and actually paying to do the collab with them, paying for the collaboration, now I paid for the collab, we got the collab going, okay? Now he's shopping the beats and then the artist picks the beat that I happen to co-produce. So that's a, that's a way to kind of get your leg in also. But a per, like I said, a person has to be willing to invest a couple of dollars in themselves in order to get with the right, attach yourself either to the right producer or the producer that has the right particular program that you can um, invest in to kind of get your, get, your, get your music in front of the right people. Let and me ask you this. Um, how much has the beat stealing or the track stealing, has it, has it, how much has it been reduced by, would you say? Or has it been reduced? Because back in the days, it was, mm -hmm. God forbid, you sent your, your, your demo or your, your, your beat tape into somebody and, you know, you oh, know it was a much bigger yeah. risk then. Has that risk been minimized to, to in, in your eyes now, currently? Because I, I get it, which is all the time, yo, I'm scared to send my beats out because I'm scared it's going to get stolen. Mm -hmm. what, what do you say to I people think, like I, that? I think, I think it's easy not to get stolen now because now... Um, publishing you know doing your publishing your copyright it, you can do it all digital but like instantly you know you can um so num number one copyright publish your shit before you even play it for your goddamn self mm -hmm. much less anybody else that's the first thing and then secondly with the internet with social media it's very much easier to call somebody out and be like yo this motherfucker stole my shit and you could play the side by side film it yeah all on the tiktok so now you know that with that being said it's easier for people to be like, oh, you know what, it ain't even worth it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because uh, they'll get called out. And, and then on top of that, um, they could be financially responsible with a cease and desist if the person, you know, did their due diligence on putting their music out properly. Let me ask you this. Should TV and film placements be the ultimate goal for, let's say, a hip-hop producer? Or is, it, is everybody's goal different? Or would you say, you know what, if you... You y'all you should be trying to get here. Yeah, yes or no? I, I think film, film and television should be the long term goal for a producer, especially someone like me. I'm 45 years old, so getting up there in age, I'm not willing to be in the studio till three, four in the morning with a bunch of niggas doing a hundred takes. Like I'm yeah. not doing the shit I was doing when I was 22. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, plus it's fucking dangerous nowadays too. You got to be strapped nowadays. Motherfuckers is wilding. These rappers. That's a dangerous job. So, you know, <laughs> I would say getting into TV and that should be the long term goal, because just imagine the person that did the theme song for Seinfeld, you know, and that shit is in syndication for years and decades to come. You know, you got to think on that level. And then on top of that, to me, it's, it's quite flattering if you watch a movie, like say like The Matrix and then your your, your keys and your, your fucking loop is being played in the, the scene where they're creeping up or whatever, mm -hmm. a popular mm -hmm. scene. I mean, mm -hmm. that's dope because that to me, that's something that means a lot more as far as like having your shit just out there versus an artist who may never really get heard like that. Okay. You know, or, or get looked over, you know, are the majority of hip hop producers small minded? Mm -hmm. Um, 
could be because I'll say it's so many of them now, man. It's 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 so many producers now. Um, say make try to just get in. I mean, it it kind of depends because I think um the barriers of entry is so easy now. You know, it's kind of hard to really tell. Some people might just want to come in for a quick attempt to get in the bag, but they have to realize that in order for you to get a bag in the music game, you got to be a, a fucking, you got to have more tentacles than a Spider-Man. I mean, mm. with me, for, for, for instance, like throughout my career, and I'm underground, I'm no one famous. I'm just an underground hustler. I mean, I did the audio engineering thing where I'm charging, you know, 50 an hour for uh, uh, studio sessions and I'm splitting it with a studio, splitting, splitting it with the house fee. Mm. Um, doing that, you got that hustle. You got the, I hosted mixtapes, you know, where I was charging a thousand dollars to host a mixtape for an artist, doing an artist tape where I'm doing a graphic design, I'm getting the duplication done, I'm the whole process. Um, then there's, um, there's the D, I used to DJ uh, clubs, so I used to do the nightclub thing, you know, you could get several hundred dollars a night plus tips, you know, you do that. Um, selling beats, I mean, yeah, that, that comes and goes, it kind of, that kind of, that's a hit and miss kind of thing. So you got to kind of like be out there in the sense of to, to get to really, you know, and then on top of that, man, you, shit, me personally, I stay with a, a, a some type of a nine to five. You know what I'm saying? I stay okay. with a gig. Okay. You know what I'm saying? To keep, you might, if you want to have a 401k, you want to have a little pension at the end of the day, then shit, I advise you probably do that too. You know, but um, I, I don't think most want to do that, right? Because in their minds, mm-hmm. they're doing all this to get away from a nine to five. And I've True. had discussions with people where they think they deem it as a step backwards. And I would tell cats when we would sign them, like, yo, don't quit your day job. What for? No, nigga, no. I'm signed. I got the advance. Like, what What, what no, do you say see, to that? Like, I'll say like a music producer, for instance, if you can get a job at a radio station. Okay. You know, if you can get a job at a university. I work at a, at a school. But like if you get a job at a university, maybe working in that department, you know, uh, if you get your bachelor's, maybe you can teach a class. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many other, there's so many ways you can do it that kind of can kind of be relative. Um, if you're an audio engineer, you can do uh, AV work. I've done AV work for for some years, uh, doing high end audio video installations for like, you know, these three million dollar apartments in Park Avenue. I mean, oh. I mean, I wouldn't frown at fifteen hundred a week. You can make fifteen hundred a week working for a company. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing that type of stuff, you know, doing our, our technical work. Um, even if you do something in IT or, you know, in, engineering, I mean, like I say that, Hey, keep your tentacles somewhere where, you know, you can get uh, some money, but at the, you're probably not straying too far away from your trade where it's something kind of associated with it. You know? Okay. So I want to kind of shift gears a bit. I kind of want to talk hip hop as it stacks up against other genres of music. Mm-hmm. Now, my opinion is my opinion. I want your opinion. How do you feel about hip hop, its production, um, musical output? How does it stack in your, in the, I'm talking the best era of hip hop, whatever, 90s, 2000s, if you want to take whatever, and put it against the best eras of other genres of music. In your opinion, how does it stack up? No, the best part of, the best time in hip hop would be yeah, I mean the golden era was amazing. I would say. Um, then you have uh, you have jazz. Hmm. Because you know hip hop borrows so much from different genres. Now is that a flaw? I think. Um. 
Not really. I, I think, for instance, in my era, coming up in the 90s, we sampled a lot of uh, soul records from the 70s. And then now you have this new generation, they're sampling R&B records from the 90s, mm-hmm. and they're flipping it into a trap way. So it's funny how it comes around full circle. Um, but I would say, I would say um, hip-hop's best era was a sample of probably R&B's best ever. You know, when you got Al Green, you got samples, some of the most popular samples. I think the best times in hip hop is actually Photoshop, a photo, a snapshot of the 70s. Okay. I would say for the most part. And that era, how, how would you put it, how would you think it would fare against, let's say, the 80s or disco? or even the classic rock era. How do you feel it stacks up or it matches up in a head to head with, with those genres? I think, um, as far as popularity, I think shit, hip hop is so popular now. It's in commercials, jingles. I mean, I think hip hop has surpassed a, a lot of genres as far as the popularity of it. But cause even rock now, they say rock is dead now. <laughs> You know, um, yeah, I think hip hop is actually it, it, it embodied so many different genres. It embodied rock and it, it embodied blues, jazz, and it just kind of just morphed into something to where it's just going to keep going. Even though those genres might have faded down, I kind of feel they morphed into hip hop and hip hop gave them kind of a new identity. Okay, so it's the perfect almost amalgamation of all all it's the Bruce Lee of this shit take what you, doesn't work but take what works and discard the rest and you have this fluid uh genre of music per se that can do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I think so. Definitely. That 4/4 four, four, uh time signature is <laughs> popular cult. Yeah, I would say definitely. Okay. Okay. I want to talk producers. Um, mainly hip hop producers. Um, is Dr. Dre the best hip hop producer in your eyes? Wow. I know he's a, he's a hell of an engineer for sure. But I think people get that confused, right? Because like, I don't want to bring anybody else into it, but my rant about dude saying he's the hip-hop best hip, hip, best producer because of his sound is clean i'm like that's sound that's engineering that sound, that's, right, right. that's nothing exactly. to do with the actual production it's an aspect of it but doesn't right. necessarily make you the best producer right, so because you know I, mm-hmm. no go ahead go ahead yeah. no because I'm, I'm thinking oh man producer i mean shit you could go eric sermon you know he, he definitely contributed and had a lot of stuff going i mean Shit. <laughs> well, does Dre get too much credit? He gets a lot of credit. He gets a lot of credit because I think um mainly because I think cause scarcity creates value. Okay. And I think with that that album that he's been promising us for so fucking long has made his value go up. I don't think we're ever going to get the album, but would it even matter yeah. at this point if, if we got yeah, that? It's like the mystique that was created behind it, I think kind of gave him a little bit of a, um, kind of a boogeyman kind of okay. vibe. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay. Okay. I think that kind of, but I wouldn't say he's the best. I wouldn't say he's the best producer. I wouldn't say that because he, you know, DJ quick got some, drum- I mean, it's a lot of producers with so many different joints, but I would say, um, 
Dilla. I mean, I got Pete Rock, Dilla, Eric Sermon. I mean, it's just so much out there. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, the Roots, for instance, there's a song called No Alibi from the first album. I'm not no. sure who made that beat. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That my, yeah. That was one of my favorite joints in 95. Okay. You know? So, yeah, I'll say Dr. Dre saying he's a better. That, that's a stretch. That That's definitely a little reach right there. Um, Outside of Dilla, Primo, Eric Sermon, who would you go with your next crop of, of, of producers after that? Okay. Um, I would definitely say Metro Boomin. Um, TM88, definitely. Uh, uh, let me see. Of course, 40. Um, yeah, 808 Mafia definitely has some fire. But um, I say TM88 is a definite, he's a unique producer. Uh, his sounds, his sound design is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much aspects. I, I feel a producer that has some sound design chops and some engineering chops could definitely manipulate his sound into whatever he wants it to be. And I mm-hmm. think he's one of those special producers, TM88. Um, which aspects of music production would you like to see come back? Or what trends um, are you seeing that you don't like that you would wish to go away? Um, yo, that damn auto-tune, man. I mean, it could be <laughs> fire sometimes, because I ain't going to lie, when I'm... When I'm I'm smoking on some Kush or something, and I'm in that vibe. You know, I could go with it. Yeah. Um, like I like that one joint from uh, it's called For the Night. I think that's the baby, little baby, and okay, somebody else. Yeah. I just, but it's a kind of like a love and hate thing with the auto tune because it'd be times I'm like, yeah, this shit is fire, but then it'd be times it's like everybody sounds the same. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, auto auto tune. Eh, I say that's probably probably maybe one of the most love-hate relationships I have with music mm-hmm. is, is the auto-tune. Um, as far as uh, production is concerned, um, I don't know, I kind of, the 808s, you know, I, I, I like the 808s, but now I'm getting more into bass lines again. Okay. Like I'm even starting to make more bass lines. I think bass lines needs to come back a little bit. Because it gives that, you know, that dimension of the, the, the melody and the bass. I just like the way it rolls around a sign bass sound. So then once again, the theory, music theory comes back. It comes back home. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure. Um, so do, if you don't mind, what, what equipment are you working on these days? What's your, what's your go-to piece of equipment? Oh, the MPC-X right here is definitely a go-to. Okay. Um. And I use the Atoria key step uh, as my MIDI keyboard. I like it because it's semi-weighted, so it gives you a kind of a piano feel, but it's still compact. Um, and then um, I have the Behringer. What is this, the M? Right, the, the Model D. I like the Model D. It's a synthesizer. Uh, it's a representation of the original Moog synthesizer. Mm. So it's real good for making organs and bass and, and other good sounds and stuff. So. For the sound design chops, that's definitely what I get into. Um, and as far as um, software, the MPC software, of course, uh, Pro Tools is st- it's definitely a go-to because it's very much user-friendly. And in Logic, I like to use Logic for my arrangements. Okay. You know, okay. Arrange your music. You know? um, 
I'm 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 a bit out the loop. Does anyone really still use a machine like that? Because I remember going to to the conferences and the seminars when they first introduced it, and it was all the rage. And you know they were right. paying, they were giving shit out like candy to everybody. Is it, is, does anyone still use that? Because I can't find anyone that still uses the machine like that. I, I haven't seen. I think um shout out to DJ Big Dez out of VA. I believe he still uses the machine. Okay. Um, I actually started with the machine when it first came out. And I got the machine. Also, um, I have a Miko LXD, but I'm doing surgery on that joint. I'm about to put a whole new motherboard and gut it out and everything. But okay. That's um, that's a, a keyboard that Timberland was endorsing some years ago, the uh, Timberland edition and things like that. Um, it's a real good piece. Uh, but um, your question, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, does anyone they are they still using the machine outside of? Oh, machine, yeah, yeah, machine is not as popular, but people they're still they're still using it. Um. But the thing about the MPC, that swing is classic. I, I like that. The swing on the MPC is so much more different. It got that that certain kind of sound to it. Yeah, um, it's machine, definitely survived the test of time without yeah, question. It definitely did. It definitely did. But the machine definitely is something that kind of is taking the back seat for right now. I haven't seen too much or heard too much from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, describe your creative process. What inspires you? Um mm-hmm. Are you the time to the type to sometimes get up at two, three in the morning, and because you have an idea to get out? How does that? How do you process that? How does that work for you? Okay. Um. Sometimes I have a late night inspiration. Uh, depends, and I'll I'll work late night. Um. Then there's times. Well, during the day, if I'm cooking up during the day, what I do is I, I'll go. You know, I'll burn some 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 weed. I'll smoke a little bit of weed. And then I go to the park and I shoot jump shots. <laughs> I shoot like a hundred jump shots. And then because I follow you on IG, and I'm like, why is he out here? Okay, that's it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I ain't gonna question it. So. <laughs> that's what my TikTok is called: music and basketball. Okay. Because um, basically, so I go out because dribbling the ball is like it's like a drum. You know what I'm saying? You dribbling the ball, it's a rhythm. Um, so I get to kind of like empty, you know, kind of um brainstorm get a little inspiration get my ideas and then while i'm playing basketball i'm listening to some of my favorite music okay so that's the process of me kind of soaking up some dope music um shooting baskets uh time and coordination if i play a pickup game with the youngsters you know i drop a little 18 points on them and shit like that you know you know then i go home um shower whatever and then i'll get into a creative process where i start working the music um and then when i start working on the music um, a lot of times, um, I'll just go in and listen to a lot of, um, probably like some throwback, uh, there's a, there's a, there's, um, there's actually a VST called, um, Arcade, where I'll go through there and I'll listen to like, um, a bunch of previews of different, like different, uh, kits and stuff like that. And then I'll go in there and then I'll start maybe finding like a guitar or something I want to try to use and I'll chop up manipulate and i'll start working my chops from there mm-hmm. and then from there once i um start getting my melodies and everything together in the npc then from there i'll uh take those files and i'll go into logic and then i'll arrange everything into how i want the chorus and the verse and everything to coincide with each other and then from there i'll go to pro tools and do a mix master and then from that i'll publish and then upload gotcha gotcha tell me how it felt when you got when you scored your first placement Wow, my first placement, I think I was, uh, what was I, 19? 
All right, so Smooth the Hustler was a rapper uh, back in the nineties. Oh, say no more. We we know who's Smooth and, and Trigger. We we remember Broken English. <laughs> yeah, that's was fire. Yeah, that style was crazy. So I had got a remix. Uh, shout out to Dante Ross. He's an A&R at Def Jam at the time. And shout out to Swigger, uh, formerly known as L Swift, Natural Elements, back in the mid nineties, the underground group. Um, he brought me to Def Jam. You know, he had to handle some business with them. Because at the time, I believe he was signing Tommy Boy. And um, he sat me down. And uh, so I'm in the office with Dante Ross. He's a legendary A&R. For those who are in the loop, you know who he is. Um, so I'm in his office and everything. And then uh, I had a beat tape. This one, we had cassette tapes. Had about like 20 beats on the joint. So after my boy handled his business, he said, yo, my boy Tone, he got some joints. You want to play for you? So I handled the tape. He puts the tape in the tape deck. You know, he's smoking the blunt and shit. And uh, he plays like literally five seconds of every beat. Like he just, he plays five seconds, skips, five seconds, skips, five. Then he gets to like the fifth beat. And then he just frowns his face. I so see the wrinkle on his forehead. And he's like, he's like, and he goes in his drawer, pulls out a dat and just throws it at me. I need a remix by Monday morning. I was like, Psh. I was like oh shit. I, could just, I was like, I didn't have a dat machine, but I figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so I hustled up, went back to the hood and, um, Started networking with cats and stuff, trying to get to a dat machine, trying to get, I had finally got someone who could strip it down for me. Okay. And then I was able to put it together. Yeah. So that was my first, that was my first placement, like remix. You know, it was an actual remix. A song with him and Case, the R&B singer Case. How, uh, how, how, how hard was it? Because, you know, we always say that the first placement is always the hardest. How, how difficult was it for you to score that? Man, I'm, well, I mean, I say difficult. Like, I almost got the shit, I almost got the remix stolen from me. That's how difficult it was because I didn't have a dat machine. So then you would have to I literally let somebody use, you know, get somebody yeah, to strip and they'll, the they copy it off. And, and then they could probably get the acapella right. and go ahead and try to, you know what I'm saying? That's so right. yeah. I had to deal with that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was hard in that sense to, to scramble because the thing about the music industry, you got one chance and you know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so you got to perform. And uh, I'll say with that, um, yeah, and then I was young, so back then I didn't really know about publishing and stuff. I was only nineteen. I didn't really know about the publishing on the back okay. end and anything like that. So okay, that's the hard part about it. How hard was it to get your first TV placement, and what was that feeling like? Oh, the first TV placement, I would say, man, that would probably have to be basketball, high school basketball. I think it's highlights or something like that. Um, that wasn't that wasn't that difficult because at that point I had a little bit more connections, so mm -hmm. then I was able to uh, the individual that uh, was a producer. Well, he's actually a, the videographer. He liked my music and stuff like that. So then he um, suggested and said, "Hey, you know, we can use this, that, and the third with his um, chain of command superiors or whoever." And then he was able to get my music placed into like um not only the basketball stuff for, um um but just for mount vernon new york uh the mount vernon high school basketball team which they just went undefeated i think they just got the chip actually nice they went undefeated um so yeah i did um and then i dj'd i actually dj'd um for one of their basketball games years ago so i kind of had like a little bit of relationship locally mm -hmm. and it's my hood too so you know and then so i was able to kind of get my um uh, to placed in the um the local tv there Okay. It felt good. It felt good, actually. Um, and some of the political stuff. And this is why I say it's always good to be versatile as a producer, because I was able to get my music on the, the trap stuff, was able to get on the basketball highlights. 
and then my more jazzier stuff was able to get into like the political arena nice. um you know commercials and stuff like that okay so school yeah um let me ask you how do you feel about all these legendary iconic artists selling their publishing their masters the royalties knowing how hard it is that you've had to work to keep and fight and and scrap to get yours how do you feel about that i feel that um yeah the publishing i feel like your publishing is is is, all right so it's intellectual property so i feel at some point in these people's career they make a decision they say all right some of them are up there in age, mm-hmm. so they may figure that, uh, depend on how they want to pass down their legacy, may or may not. But I, I, I see it as equity. That's like having a house that you bought in 1976 for $50,000, and now that house is worth a million dollars. So you're like, okay, I got about 900 thousand in equity. Let me go ahead and cash out. You know, I, I feel it's like a cash out thing. But they just want to, because your publishing is like that's your that's your equity, you know. So I feel they may get a certain point in their career where they're better off just cashing out the money and doing something else versus, you know. But that's a yeah. And then on top of that, I forgot how much years it was to go in the public domain. I think it's a particular amount of years after your death, I believe it is. Uh, yeah, so, I, I know that it went up a few years ago, but I, man, I ain't researched that shit in so long because they're yeah, always, it's been a while. yeah, they're always fighting to add more to it. Um, because right. other people are trying to lower it so you can have access to it, but then other people are trying to raise it, the, the number. Um, is that something you would ever do if the, the, the check is big enough? If the check is big enough. Would I ever do that? If I was to do that, I would have to use that money to transition into some a totally different direction that could surpass. Okay. In other words, let's say uh, I take that money and I buy, um, I buy uh, twenty acres of land, and I develop uh, a strip of condominiums that's mixed commercial and residential. Mm-hmm. So therefore, my you know I that will last for generations then yeah okay i can i can see that but just to do it just so i can get a bentley and, and ride around with a new chain I, I don't think that would be it'll make sense okay what are your thoughts when you see basically the the major white artists selling out and the urban artists still hoarding on to theirs now i'm not saying the white man's ice is always colder but i'm looking at the trends i'm like well if they're getting rid of their stuff should we follow suit because you you timberland sold some of his uh, the dream sold his baby face um so when you see moves like that made uh do you think regular urban artists should follow suit um i guess i guess i guess it could depend on because i have i have white friends right and right now, my white friends, uh, like Brandon, he's like, yo, bro, you got to get with these NFTs, man. I'm telling you, bro. And, you know, so it's like they'll put you onto some shit. And if you like, I, let me see. I, let me throw a little hundred at it or something. Yeah. Sometimes that shit, you know, sometimes that shit do hit, you yeah. know. Yeah. They'll put you onto the Bitcoin when the shit was like $3 a coin, yeah. you know, yeah. shit like that. I'll say that as far as the, the color aspect of it. Um, So I would say the the, the industry may be changing. uh 
like I said, with this whole NFT thing, I think that might change the game a little bit on how money's made on the back end, you know? Uh, I don't know if that might have something to do with it, but it seems to be like this virtual world. I don't know what they're preparing for, but I, I, I could imagine that being something to do with it. Okay. You know, okay. As far as them selling off their publishing, maybe they might be going. Because even with Snoop buying Death Row, I think he's uh, he's into the NFT things now too. Yeah. Where he's going to kind of have that into like the NFT and how he's going to, I guess, you know, monetize off that. So it might be something there. All right, so I want to read off a super chat real quick before we get to our final topic of the night. Necessary says, interesting guests love the stories. Thank you, dear. Right, so let's, let's totally shift gears now. Mm-hmm. You, sir, you see things. You're not in the eye, you're not in the, the, the eye of the storm. You see things because you go outside and you touch grass and you talk to people. Brother, right, what? Right. What is your take on these niggas down the street? <laughs> so when you say the niggas down the street, is that a, a particular uh, the manosphere? The ma- yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the manosphere. Oh, okay, got you, got you. Yeah, yeah. Shit, because there's so many. It's it's some of them. I it's some of them I check out. I find entertaining, and some of them might have some might be some issues there. You know. Um, as far as I right, so so as far as as far as what in particular as far as their view are are, on are you okay so are you are you shocked at some of the rhetoric and the belief systems that you know these men are saying online is like are are you taking it back like are you scratching the head like where's this coming from I don't see this. Uh, well, well, you know, because well, I see yeah, we we it, be in the cheetah. I don't see it. Yeah, I don't see. I think a lot of these dudes they get their narrative from the internet, so they live on the internet. So a lot of times they parrot things and experiences from other people without necessarily having those personal experiences them, themselves. I okay, think, in a sense, which is which is why they need to actually go outside and meet people and interact so that they can have. Because I, I believe relationships are subjective you know to based on those two people and how they get down how two consenting adults decide to do their thing and that's so relative to just the, the you know so i can't really take a statistic and really measure that i have to really kind of go off my own experiences more or less mm-hmm. you know because that can be that very well the case but depending on how you nurture your situation your outcome could be very different than the average person you know so do, I think about it. do you find yourself struggling to to relate to to them to the to their narratives talking points do you even or do you even sympathize or can you empathize with with some of these guys and and you know yeah the talking points i would say like as far as the the, the rejections i don't they shouldn't remember the rejections because rejection is inevitable you should be so forward thinking that by the time you even realize you were rejected, you should be knee deep with the new bitch. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you shouldn't be. So I, I really can't understand how someone can harbor uh, uh, this such a disdain for such a long period of time for decades. And you're talking about guys in their fifties belly aching over shit that happened in 10th grade. It's just, I don't get it. That part. I just don't, I don't understand that. 
do, do you feel it adds to the negative uh, image of, of black men as if we don't already have Hollywood and what they do to us and now you come online and you hear this now I, I'll be the first to admit the women are out of order that's a not, no no argument there right. but it seems that men have taken on the female attributes and have decided to retaliate in woman-like ways when that's not how men counteract a woman's moves and motives what, 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 what do you say to that yeah i think what it is is the guys are too focused on the negative and the undesirable okay so for instance everybody has a type or someone or a preference that they focus on the actual preference and go for that because all right let's say for instance um if you don't like women that are 300 pounds fine you don't have to talk to them you don't have to address them you don't have to try to uh uh give them some type of um rehab rehab type of <laughs> they're trying to rehabilitate fat bitches like bro if you're not into fat broads just move around and just go talk to the slender joints you know the, the little petite or whatever you you know why are you even spending time even arguing with these broads that you don't i just don't see any point in that and again when you do that you take your brain takes snapshots of what you don't desire mm. and it puts it right back into your life because mm. you're so focused on that your energy system is so focused into that that you realizing like now you realize wondering why you keep attracting the, the type of chicks that you don't like because you're too focused on them you know uh, um what, what are your okay let me how can i ask this what shapes or what has helped shaped your belief your outlook on life uh what do you attribute that to um i think starting young you know um as far as like okay so as far as relationships we should all have taken a crack at puppy love you know get your heart broke when you're in elementary you know get all that shit out the way early let you get your red pill earlier with definitely yeah the red pill get all that stuff early you know what I'm saying? So you can see what it is and then you can focus on getting some money and <laughs> getting a career. Mm-hmm. So you're not in your because here's the thing. Um, I think you should um have these experiences, man. Like I, I just so because once you reach once you're a man of a certain age, your focus should be in areas that are not so trivial as to getting pussy. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that's how I and um yeah, I'll say starting young, um, getting some experience in traveling, um, getting out of the way. You know, I went to the military when I was, uh, what, 21? Because mm-hmm. after I got out of high school, you know, being around for a few years, I was like, eh, let me see what else is out there, you know? Okay, okay. And then that's how I was able to kind of get my experiences and have a worldview. Now, I would say as far as um, it's quite embarrassing when you have, uh, you know, you got black dudes on here professing how like the white woman's ice is colder and all this type of shit. I need them to, I need them to relax. Okay. Cause we've been smashing these white bitches since like junior high and <laughs> come on, man. We, 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 we all had the slutty white girl who came to school with the sweater and then she changed into the little slutty shit and she's smoking cigarettes at recess. We yeah. already know the, the, the little loose Italian bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. You got to stop acting like this shit is some like new discovery type shit it's like bruh it's embarrassing because now when i'm out and about you know i got these white bitches looking at me like i'm supposed to be sweating them uh, they thinking they, they seen all these black dudes online yeah. sweating them and shit okay. 
You know what I'm saying? So then now you making this shit awkward for brothers like me who don't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You got you got fat fat white bitches looking at me like, like 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 what you ain't gonna talk to me either? No, bitch. No, nah, that's them niggas online. Chill out. Relax. You know what I'm saying? It's embarrassing, man. Like you dudes gotta stop. And with the traveling shit, acting like your passport. Bro, listen, anybody with $150 can get a fucking passport. It's not I've I had a passport since I was three years old. Mm-hmm. I done been to Trinidad, Barbados, everywhere you been there, done that. Listen, if your family cares about you, you're gonna have some type of family vacation at some point in your childhood. Okay. I'm I'm very sorry for your luck. Is you just got your passport at 42 years old. I, I'm sorry, bro. I'm sorry that you've just been embarked upon that experience. Mm-hmm. That's something that you should have been doing since you was a fucking baby, man. Yeah. Since you was a five, six, seven-year-old kid, you should have been have stories about Barbados. Oh, my family went to the... That should just be some natural, regular shit. It's nothing... Like, stop. And then it's like trying to make it seem like uh, women from overseas are better than women in America. Listen, women will women. That's what the fuck they do. Regardless of where you go, I don't care... With race, with nationality, you're going to have good, the bad, and the motherfucking ugly. Mm-hmm. All in the same group. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So whether you go to you go to uh, the Caribbean, whether you go to Latin America, wherever you go, it's going to be some ain't shit bitches there too. Mm-hmm. So you still have to use your vetting. You still have to have discernment on however you move with these broad stop. Because now, shit, I done been to the DR. I done did all I done had property. I done flipped land over there and everything. I've done that in the, what is it, 2007, 2008 before this thing was even a thing mm-hmm. you know and um what i'm saying is it's embarrassing fam because now if i decide to go down there again i got these bitches looking at me like i'm a walking lick yeah and i'm not yeah you know what i'm saying so it's it's like they have to realize going on the internet and saying all this spewing all these things you're just gassing these bitches heads up for, for no reason you know what i'm saying but yeah that's how i feel about that Okay, no, oh, right on, right on. Uh, couldn't have said it any better. Let me ask you this: Does hip hop age well? Mm, as and far I'm, as like I, the older rappers, I, I'm asking because watching the Super Bowl halftime show, I'm sorry, maybe I'm, maybe I'm biased. I'd rather see sixty-year-old right. white men with instruments. Right. I don't want to see fifty-year-old rappers crib walking. But maybe that's my oh, personal man. bias. So I, I, I'm asking you, does hip hop age well? Is man, it strictly um, a young man's genre? I think I think it's for for the most part it seems to be a young man's genre. Um, the only ones I mean, the the ones that really that go on stage and probably could still get a little props and shit is like maybe like a KRS one, even though he's old, he still his show is still crazy. Um, and people know he's old school, so you expect him to be old in a sense. But you know, your mid level, I guess, like you're yeah, snooping them. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy because the showmanship you're saying, like the crip walking and everything like that, right? It's just, yeah. Well, don't get me wrong, guys like it's Buster hard, 50. man, because those songs came out when they were young, yeah, and they still gotta kind of have yeah. that. It, it, yeah. it, it hits a little different. Like, like I said, I, I would go see Buster. 50 mm-hmm. 60 years old krs1 kane the greats right. of the great the greater performers i would go see them i don't right. want to see snoop at, at 50 60 years i i just i've seen him perform yeah. before and he's different. not the best performer jay-z's not the best performer right. you know it, he it even seem, said it himself right it seems to be more of that 
then you busted your 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 your, your, um, your KRS's. You like know the, what I'm saying? It's like the old guard, the old yeah, yeah. Like, what happened to everybody else? I don't understand. You know, that's kind of odd. You you're right though. It's the old gatekeepers that really just keep keep going. I don't see like, damn. Whatever happened to Souls of Mischief, man? They had that classic '93 from Infinity was my shit. Still in my playlist. That's still my in my playlist, joint, man. That, damn. Um, the yeah, out- it's so many, it's so many that we don't see anymore, really. Yeah, the Outsiders from Jersey. Like I thought they were the oh, next. Wow. They were supposed to be yeah. the next big group, you know, after uh, BCC and Wu Tang, and it just never. Right. For uh, uh, Pace One, I, I used to hang out with him uh, a few times before. So and he, I thought he was stupid dope. Right, but right. for whatever reason, um, mm-hmm. where do you see hip hop going? The future of production is going where? How? I think the future of production. I don't know. It seems to go. It seems to be going back to what boom bap a little bit. I, I'm seeing people are starting to appreciate lo-fi more. Um, and I noticed like my lo-fi beats been streaming a lot. Like, and it's because I looked at the stream reports for like the month of February. I think it was. So I'm noticing. Um, I see that um, it's gonna. People want soul. People, I think people want a little bit more soul in the music now. It's okay. Like it's gonna go back to more soul, kind of uh, boom bap ish in, in that sense. Um, trap will kind of have its place, but I see trap kind of taking a little bit of a slowdown. It's okay. slowing down just a little bit. Um, I got a question from Mark Scales. He wants to know what do you think about Biggie taking his style from Heavy D. Hmm. The style, the rap style, is not really the rap style. Do you even agree with that statement? I don't put them. Style was a little bit more different than Biggie's. Yeah, Heavy D was the dancing, the dancing big guy. Like I think that was his lane per se. Like I don't think anyone. Yeah, unless he's talking about being a the big ladies man. That image of the big ladies man. I mean, Heavy D was one of the pioneers of that. Um, I wouldn't say that. I would say I would say Chub Rock. Chub Rock was somebody that Biggie okay. really, you know, what I'm saying, kind of reminds me like the the, the the slight rasp in his voice a little bit. Chub 1990. Chub Rock jumps up on the scene, scene with the green in the bucket full <laughs> of green. green. Yes, that kind of gives me partying bullshit vibes a little bit. Yeah, I remember Thanks, the man. the remix he did with the Sanford and Son sample. They chopped that up and uh, the Chubster, mm. the remix. And I was like, okay, oh, wow. yes, I had yes. that. I had that. I had that on vinyl, I believe. Did you? Okay, I had the maxi, yeah. the maxi single. I was, I was all about the maxi singles. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think because I know I had the album. I know I had a few albums on vinyl back then too. Like, I was a collector back in those days. But yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I don't think he took Heavy D's style in that sense as far as sonically. Unless you Blue Funk, the Blue Funk album from Heavy D. I think that was his best yeah, album. Big, Biggie had Machine Gun Funk. Mm, I don't know if you want to say maybe in concept. No, I don't. I don't really see it too much. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, yeah. as you grow uh, and continue to prosper, do you see yourself ever pretty much branching out into other genres of music and kind of putting hip hop to the side? Uh, uh, you know, moving forward. Say if you if you get if you end up getting it's like you said how you got a placement for political ads and things of that nature, um, do you ever see a time where you say you know what hip hop I've outgrown it I need to let me go on over here with the with the other other side. 
It would be uh shit. It would probably be jazz. I don't know. Okay. I see myself being an old, an old dude getting into like a, a jazz band or some shit. Okay. So, okay. You know what I'm saying? Or, yeah, I see jazz or maybe blues or some shit. You know what I'm saying? Just sitting around playing fucking guitar all day with the old cats, smoking joints and shit like that. <laughs> well, I, I was gonna say like, um, you're very reserved man you're just so chill like what is that where does that come from is that just age and and wisdom and you just learn not to only worry about things that you can control because i mean you're you're like the producer i would expect like that's just in the in the dungeon 12 12 hours a day and it's like i've got the fire and he's always down there working where's that where's homie he's down there working like you're so reserved (laughs) i mean that as a compliment like you're just very even keeled. Is that just how you live life? Like, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have a military background. I used to be in the army. Um, so I have a, a, a certain appreciation for life in a sense where I've done been in struggles where you got 90 pounds of gear on your back and you're walking 22 miles and shit like that. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, I have a, I have an appreciation for the simple things for one. And um, yeah, I would say that, that, that definitely comes with age and um I say it comes with that and and being I'll say being in a serious relationship also um it allows you to have a certain temperament of relaxation and just focus okay. you know what I'm saying because you're not spinning plates and texting a bunch of broads and like yo well you're going to be oh, I'm going to call you back uh, 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 and doing all that other extra shit you yeah yeah more relaxed you know it's there when you want it and then you know you can focus on other shit so I think that has a lot to do with it too cool cool well um I'm not going to hold you. Um, I'm curious, who all have you worked with? Or do you remember all the people you, you've, you've come in contact with? Yeah. Um, in the beginning, uh, let me see, before Bad Boy, I, well, uh, DJ Premier, met him in a studio because um, he, he did a joint for my artist, Hostile. Um, Guru, which was a real cool cat, God bless his soul. Uh, got to hang with him. We did the session. Uh, he did his shit in one take, and then we went to the club after that. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, he was a cool dude, man. Very down to earth guy. Um, I would say, uh, and then working at Bad Boy, I worked alongside Mario Winans, you know, doing a, doing his setups and everything for the sessions. I was a, I was his assistant, um, working with him in the studio. I got to learn a lot about production, observing him. Um, uh, Doe Fat, there's another one, man. His drums, he's he'll spend two, three hours on drums. Mm. I learned learned a lot observing him. Um, who else? Uh, ran into a few people. I I say working at Bad Boy, I probably met a lot of different people from like um, in passing. But then you know you had Danny D. Kane, you had um, you know Kanye, you know uh. Little Kim, Nas, you know, whoever came through that studio, because that studio, Daddy's House Recording Studio at the time, was a studio, because Diddy had his hands in everything, you yeah. know, executive, executive producing, you know, Nicki Minaj, you know, Rick Ross, you know, different types of things. So you had different artists coming through there. Um, but yeah, definitely. I'll say, I'll say working with Mario Winans was one of the good experiences as far as getting to really understand production and the importance of all them damn keyboards he had, you know shit like that well let me ask you this um does bad boy get a bad rep um because you you 
you worked there, you've seen the culture, you've seen how the business is, is it was implemented. Do, do they, is it, is it, is it over the top, the bad rap that, that the label gets has the, the, the dark cloud per se, or you didn't see all that to, to be like, well, yeah, no, I mean, you, you had a pretty positive experience. I can, I'm assuming working there, correct? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I would say working, I was working in the A&R department, which was a studio, Daddy's House Recording Studio. The label was about 10 blocks away on 55th, 54th, somewhere around there. We was on 44th and 8th. So a lot of the label dealings was at the other location. So it wasn't really a lot of politics where I was at um, for the most part. Um, it's just funny how, I don't know, everybody just has one album that, that ever been signed there mostly, mm -hmm. what I noticed, you know? Um, but as far as business-wise, shit. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. Okay. Like That's okay. Them, yeah, them <laughs> contracts, I don't know, man. The publishing, it's kind of weird. I mean, like I said, it's like a one-off. You know, you get your one-off. I think the way Diddy works is you get your one off and you got to figure it out from there. Well, isn't that it's like, a, well, isn't that how it's supposed to be? The label is a launching pad for you and what right. you do with, with it after that, they put you in a position to win. Now, right. It, right. It, like me, when I was, when I was working, I was, I started, I was an intern. I started off interning there. And at the time I was a mixtape DJ. So this is when I had on my mixtapes all in the streets in New York city. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with like DJ Clue, DJ K Slay, SNS, like all those guys, right. doo-wop, yes, yes. Yeah, so I had my joints out there too. So working at working there gave me advantage. So I was able to get exclusives. I even did like two mixtapes with Bad Boy. Okay. Actually. But um, I was able to get songs and freestyles and exclusives. So it kind of worked to my advantage. But I would say, man, overall, whoever whoever has a chance to be even around the business acumen of a Diddy should take notes and apply that to their bag you know i would say i wouldn't say rely on that to be a long-term plan but get enough nuggets out of it so that you can add it to whatever you got going on and take it and move so is it fair to to place a certain amount of blame on the artist because i i tend to do so i'm like look they put you in a position your job is to learn it they're not going to just right. sit you down and be like the, the abc's one two three you have to go out to, you got to go to these people and be like bug them like yo look i want to learn help i mean you know what i'm saying like right it's too easy to, to blame a guy like diddy right it says too easy and you gotta understand the business it's not his job to really do your business right a, a businessman's job is always going to be to have leverage over and so i mean yeah fair exchange no robbery but this is the music business there's yeah. always going to be some type of leverage on the, on, the, on the person that's really investing money into you they gotta if they invest uh let's say a hundred grand into you, they're going to want to at least see a million off that, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's going to definitely be definitely going to play the leverage game when it comes to um, the music business. Have you had contracts where you just said no? I've never, I've, the funny thing is from my experience in the industry, I've always been a, a independent, an independent cat underground independent, but I've never had like an offer for a production, actual production deal. Okay. And I've never really had an interest in that because I always like creative control and I always like to own a hundred percent of my publishing, even if I'm not making a whole lot of money on mm. it, it doesn't matter. Cause I, I see a musician is probably going to make more money after death than they do in their actual life. You know, right. People are not going to really, you know, so I always like to have control over that. Um, 
And I'm a I'm a type of guy I I, I like to have a free schedule, man. <laughs> you know, I like I don't want to be a slave to the rhythm. You know? Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't really have that. I never really had like an uh, an interest to really be mainstream or, or anything like that. Um, it's interesting you say that. Um, I don't think people really understand how powerful the allure of mainstream access or success or just the chance of it is. Could you put that into words for the layman people out there? Because I, I tell people they don't understand that having your name in lights will draw you, will make you do things that you... Can you speak to that, please? Yeah, I, I see like going mainstream, I see that as you, you obviously compromising definitely some of your, your intellectual property, if not all of it. Um, and then, of course, you're not going to be able to express yourself the way you want because you got the your alphabet communities, you got like, um, you know, the, the social justice warriors. Yeah. You know, you have sponsors now and you don't want to get, you know. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's kind of like a game of, um, you know, you, you really got to know what you're getting into. And then on top of that, um, being mainstream, then you're going to have to deal with, uh, I mean, you're going to probably need some type of security, I would, ima I would imagine. So, you know, because you're moving around, you know, you don't know what type of crazy people are out there. So it's a lot that comes with that, I would say. Would you, know? would you say that those that chase fame have validation issues to a certain extent? Right? They have voice they're trying to fill? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, w I would say that. I would say that of someone who's chasing fame is definitely looking for some some sort of validation because they they want the fame even if it if it's to their detriment, hmm. you know, or, or even if it works against them, they they just don't care, you know. Um, it's just like a chick who wants attention, and even if she's out there bad, as long as she gets attention, like on the back end, she doesn't care. It's like almost like a chick who does. It's like a, a a false allegation, or what's what's that chick from uh, Martin? Uh, uh, Atisha Campbell. Campbell. Right. So it's like you know, it's like someone saying, "Oh, they try to kidnap me," da, 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 da. even though you're gonna look like a whole idiot. Yeah. You know, the 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 attention is almost outweighs the cost of them looking like a fucking fool. Right. You know? Yeah. So I think that people that chase fame is kind of like that, almost that same type of thing. You know, they're willing to just. Cause you know the deaths in hip hop these days, you kind of kind of wonder like, bro, it's a little bit, it's a little much. Well, I, if you don't mind touching on that, what 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 are your thoughts mm -hmm. on? Is it just maybe it's just, it's being sensationalized because instant media access, or you, you know, do we do we go with know, camera I'm like niggas die every day? Empire Records, <laughs> fucking Empire Records, their their whole roster, damn. I'm like, what's going on? Be like, so now I'm starting to think, okay, is it? You know, people saying it, it might be some kind of life insurance thing, and then people might say, is it, you know, it, it might be, you know, it might be the the some gematria shit. I mean, it's it's it could be so many different, you know, um, well, or I, it could be, yeah. I, I dumb it down. Like, if I'm gonna take an artist that comes from an at risk environment, has a, you know, lives a lifestyle that's that puts him at risk, and I'm gonna invest time and money into this guy, he's talented, but yeah, I, why would I not? You know, if I tell you, hey, don't you know, leave the leave the guns and drugs alone. I can't, bro. You know, it's just, it, I, we we've all come across those types. So I can't fault a business. You know, it's like right, the bad little cousin and the auntie puts the cousin. Yeah. What, right. what, 
Yeah, I mean that's how. Yeah, that is business at the end of the day, and then, that, and that's how I see it. And then, um, with them, it, like I said, it's a dangerous job. You got the money phone. You got like ten thousand dollars in your hand right here. You live on Instagram. Your location is says the Rupp Arena downtown or some shit. You know what I'm saying? So now the goons, they they can come get you so easy. You know, is so you know you never. And then on top of that, you gotta you gotta realize this too. Um, these guys could still be messing with some chicks in the hood, you know, who have the crazy baby daddy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it, shit just happens, you know. You get ran down on or, or whatever the case may be. Unfortunate situations. And then, like I said, a, a lot of these situations, too, well, some of them, it's like they were either dating some type of chick or, you know, or something. Or A lot of these chicks are connected to, 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 to you know, maybe not the most desirable motherfuckers. So you got to be careful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Gotta be careful. Cause just through, through conversation, she could be like, oh yeah, I've been to his crib. Oh, he got this, that, and it's, it's having casual conversation. The motherfucker, oh word. The way he he you say he's where? In Brooklyn? Avenue Z. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, what, what time you go to work? Yeah. Shit. They have your whole layout. You know what I'm saying? Go, they go right to you know what I'm saying? It's it's too easy nowadays, man. Right, like, right, right. That's gotta be careful. Well, my man, Tony Anthems, um, shout yourself out. Where can everybody find you? Definitely. Uh, my website is TonyAnthems.com. And uh, if you go on the YouTube and you type in Tony Anthems, you're going to find my YouTube page. You're going to probably find some of my um, beats and loops and my um, my artist page where you can, um, you know, you get all my beats and everything like that. You can download them, stream them. Yeah, let's do that. Put that 10 cents in there. I'm not monetized on YouTube through my YouTube, but I am monetized through my music. So, um, you know, every time you play the beat, you know, that little ad money, that shit adds up, man. <laughs> well, final final question. How do you feel about streaming? Um, I, even though it's probably the worst payout, I think it's worse. Oh, man, it's the worst. <sighs> the best time The best time for me was, was as a DJ, was the mixtape era. Okay. I was, man, like, you're talking about 100 racks a year, easy. Because that was direct to consumer, or you had consignment right, direct, and, and direct, yeah, direct, okay. yep, consignment, a little bit of both. Because living in New York City area, you have five boroughs, you know, so you know you drop a tape, and you just go. I'll start where I'm at. I was two forty first Street in the Bronx. I'll start there, and I'll work my way from Bronx to Harlem, mm-hmm. from Harlem to down all the way downtown Manhattan, Brooklyn, and then I'll hop over to Queens, then go all the way around. And then you talk about you know moved a thousand units within twenty four hours. Gotcha, nice. You know, Nice. So, but it's different now with the downloads and the streams. It's just like you're gonna have to put money into that advertisement to really get your shit kicking. Basically. Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm hoping one day the payout it's it's paltry it doesn't even describe the, the the streaming payout rates and they fight to keep that shit low and wanna reduce it. And I'm just like, Jesus. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Um it's crazy. Yeah, my man Tony Anthos, bro. I once again I'm apologize to everybody. I should have had him on months ago. I didn't put the two and two together, brother. So. <laughs> <laughs> now I appreciate you sharing the platform, man. It's an yeah, honor yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, definitely, man. I I wish you much continued success. I definitely want to bring you back on and we talk more hip hop, more music, things of that nature, definitely. man. Because um, you know, people like the war stories, and you got war stories, and uh, you know, I I respect your opinions and and your take on 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 things, because. Like motherfuckers was giving me hell about this music theory shit. I'm like, y'all don't understand. Like music theory is everything. Like it's everything. Oh, yeah. You know? That so shit helps. That shit helps. Yeah. So with that being said, my man, I want to thank you. Thank you for your time and energy, brother. Thank you for hanging out with me tonight. Likewise. And uh definitely, definitely we'll bring you back.
So definitely appreciate them. My man, you have a good night. All right, you too, man. Peace yes. to everybody on the platform. Sir, yes, sir. Yo, that's my man Tony Anthems with a Z. Um, YouTube, IG, all that good stuff. Um, thank everybody for for hanging out. Hopefully, got some out of it. Um, yeah, so I definitely will bring, be bringing on more people to interview and, and things of that nature. I think that's what I'm going I'm to pretty much focus on, just live streams and interviews uh, moving forward. So with that being said, I thank everybody. Y'all have a good night. Peace.